One of my all-time favorite things. Prone to wander, prone to leave our God in, that, in His grace. He's willing to seal us, to keep us. What a gospel, amen? Amen. Church, we're going to continue our series in Acts today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 19, we're going to be finishing that out today. While you're doing that, let me say two quick things. The first one is, I'm just, I'm just struck today afresh by how much of a privilege it is to be together. I feel like with everything going on in our world right now, everything so many folk in our church are experiencing from suffering and sickness to loss to fear to all the different things going on. It is just so good to be together. I'm glad you guys are here. It is a joy to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to speak really quick to the core team class. Uh, if you've been around since we've been getting ready for this re- uh, replant together, we've been talking about this a while. This is um, essentially one of the big things we're asking of you guys if you join the core team of this new church, which is just a way of you committing yourself, saying, you know, I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, my family is all in, this is our church home, we want to be a part of this. That's a way of letting leadership know that you're kind of all in with us, and we would encourage you guys, or we asked if you've made that commitment, to take this class at least once in the first year of the life of the church. Um, our first one will be launching, I think the first Sunday in February, we'll meet in this space at 4 p.m., uh, 4 to like 5.30 or so, so we can spread out. It'll take six weeks. We'll take a week off for the Super Bowl because, you know, listen, we, I'm, I'm reasonable, okay? I'm all about killing idolatry, but we also have to be realistic. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, this is the first. We'll have several of these over the course of this calendar year, so if you can't make this one, it's fine. Or if you can only make part of it, that's fine. Please just let me know because I am trying to keep track of uh, who, who's able to be a part of these. This is essentially just, it's a six weeks discipleship class where we're just going to talk about what, what our hope, what our prayer, what our desire is for what God will do through this church in the life of an individual believer. Uh, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. Even if you haven't yet signed up for the core team, if you want to take the class and let that be something that helps you make that decision, we'd love for you to do that. So uh, just sign up in the back table there. Anyway, today we're in Acts. Acts chapter 19, we're finishing out what uh, theologians call the Ephesian scene. Uh, We've been in Ephesus for a little bit. This is one of the longer periods of time that Paul spends in a specific place in the story of Acts. And today we're kind of seeing that thing flesh out. And what we're going to see in this story, it's a wild story. It's wild for a couple of reasons. It actually feels pretty familiar Basically, we're going to look at a riot today that happens in Ephesus, and if you've been reading Acts with us, you're like, this is not our first rodeo with a riot uh, centered around the movement of God, but there is some unique factors to this. This is on a scale that has been unheard of in Paul's ministry up to this point, and it has just kind of some, some stark images, some stark language in it that's just, it's just intense, and I think it's going to lead us unavoidably to this truth that our King Jesus is not content to simply coexist with idolatry. Now, before you get too far down a mental road here, that's not me taking a hot take on someone's bumper sticker. I, I, to be totally honest, I don't particularly care what theology your, bumper, your car bumper spouses. This is the plain reading of the text, right? We're, we're going to get into this idea that idolatry is incompatible with the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's a big statement. 
an intense statement that I think actually has some pretty significant bearing on our expression of our faith right here and right now. And so that's a little big, but I think it'll actually be good for us today. Just this idea, our King Jesus, he, he, does, he is not content to coexist with idolatry. It's not something he's satisfied with, which means we shouldn't be either, on a side note. So let's read this text, and then we're going to dig into it, kind of like we always do. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21, we read this. Now, after these events, this is referring to the rest of Acts 19 and several of the narratives we got about what's been going on in Ephesus. Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also go and see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrespute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Artaxarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Astriarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had finally quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have with him a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger here of being charged with rioting, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the gift of coming together. Thank you for family. Thank you for just the gift of worship and freedom and worship, being together in this space. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that in this time, whether we're together in this room physically or whether we're engaging this online or even at a later time, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us as our hearts require. That you would speak your truth to us through your word. That you would encourage us, that you would convict us. And Lord, we just ask that we would leave this space today having heard from you afresh. God, I want to pray specifically for those of us who have heard the same thing from you, the same conviction from you over and over and have not been willing to walk in obedience, Lord. I pray that you would speak that afresh again. Give our hearts fresh ears, fresh eyes to hear from you and be moved by you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're in this story in Acts and we're in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. Bruce, did I put slides on that computer? I don't think I did. I didn't. Okay. I had a couple and I forgot to put them in. That's my bad. So remember, Acts tells us the story of Paul's first three missionary journeys, right? He kind of makes his way from his home base in this church in Antioch out into the world three different times. And we're smack dab in the middle of the third of those journeys, the last one that Acts records. Now, if you recall, just to kind of put us in the headspace here, he just finished, we, we just read through him finishing the second journey in chapter 18. And it was this really brief transition. You could have easily missed it. He had, he had made his way up north out of Antioch, across what we call Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, into what we call Greece, and had worked his way down the Greek coast. And then he was like, okay, I'm good. And he headed home to Antioch and then Jerusalem. And unlike in the first transition, from the first journey to the second journey, Paul does not spend much time at home. He goes home, he checks in, he visits with his church family, and then he goes, I got stuff to do. And so he heads back out immediately, traveling across what they called Asia, what we call Turkey, visiting afresh all the churches he had planted on his first missionary journey. So the churches throughout Galatia, right? And he makes his way to Ephesus. He had stopped at Ephesus briefly, and he saw some potential for ministry there, but was, was on his way somewhere else. And it basically told the church there, a church that he didn't plant, by the way, but he told the church there, man, I would love to spend some time with you. I don't have time right now, so maybe someday in the future if God allows. Well, now on his third journey, he makes his way back to Ephesus. And I guess he really meant what he said, because boys think in parks in Ephesus and just hangs out there for two and a half years. Right? This is the longest stay Paul has in any specific part of his missionary journeys. There's something about the context in Ephesus that allows Paul to settle in, not only to working his craft, he has some friends there who work in a similar trade, and so he can make money and support himself, but also Ephesus is situated in such a way that he can easily correspond with all the churches he's planted throughout Turkey and throughout Greece. In fact, a lot of the letters that make their way into our New Testament are letters he wrote while staying at Ephesus during this period of time, like First and Second Corinthians, books like that, were written during this period of the Ephesian ministry. If you were here last week, Jim got, did a really good job of kind of talking through the context of the city and what Paul's ministry looked like as he was spending his day working his craft, ministering to the church in Ephesus, preaching the gospel in, in the public places as well as in the synagogue, and also corresponding, sending letters back and forth through messengers to all the different churches he's been a part of. Now, after two, two and a half years, 
Paul begins to kind of build in his brain what needs to be next. And he tells us here, okay, so he kind of gets it in his head. I'm going to cross back over the Aegean Sea, which, which Ephesus sits pretty much at the coast right between Turkey and Greece. I'm going to cross back over. and I'm going to go visit all the Macedonian churches again. These are all the Greek churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Berea. I'm going to go visit them one more time. Then I'll head back to Jerusalem and see Antioch one more time. And then we're going to do Italy. So, so if you look at a map, right, if you have a Bible map in the back of your, in the back, you can kind of look at the, the way the Mediterranean Sea is set up. Paul's missionary journeys kind of go like one frontier at a time. And so he starts out in Palestine and Israel and Antioch. It's right along that coast of the Mediterranean. And then he makes his way up one body of land into what we call Turkey, what he called Asia. After he visits there and comes back, then he makes his way to the next body of land, what we call Greece, what they called Macedonia. And now he's looking at the next further frontier, the next chunk of land along the Mediterranean coast, which is Italy and Rome proper, the capital of the Roman Empire. Paul is planning through the logical progression of what his ministry has looked like, right? Go as far as he can go, head back to Jerusalem. Go as far as he can go, head back to Jerusalem. And now he's looking at a larger loop. Right around the time he starts to get this plan formulated in his head, he's starting to put things in place. He's sending his workers ahead of him to make sure, you know, there's places for him to stay, there's enough food to eat. Like getting all, while he's getting the logistics worked out, everything blows up finally in Ephesus. Now, if you've been in this study of Acts with us, like I said, this is not surprising. Paul usually leaves a town just a few footsteps ahead of an angry mob with pitchforks and torches. Like, that's kind of this boy's M.O. But this, this particular story of the riot at Ephesus takes this whole idea and just jacks it up a level. And we need to sit with that for a minute. And the reason is this. Ephesus was one of the most densely populated cities in the Roman Empire at this point in time. It's in the top five or six big cities. We're talking 200 to 300,000 people populated in an ancient city, right? You know, pre-electricity and internet and indoor plumbing city. This is a lot of people. This is not him in Podunk, Galatia, where the first riot kind of gets going. This is him hanging out in New York City in a riot and, you know, in the middle of the streets. This is a big deal. And here's how it comes about. This guy, Demetrius, he gets mad because the ministry of Paul and the church in Ephesus is messing up his commerce. Now we have to talk about, this, get a little bit into the history and culture here. And, and then this may be a little heady for a second, but I actually think this will be beneficial for us. So a couple of things we have to understand here. The first one is the religion of Rome is inherently syncretistic, synchronistic. That the theology, the worldview of the Romans was essentially this. Any religious practice, as long as it's beneficial, probably has some level of truth to it. So we're just going to suck it up and glue it onto our existing religious behemoth. As, as Rome spread throughout the world and engaged new cultures, anytime they encountered a history, a culture, a religious practice, a theology that worked, is very pragmatic, they just go, that's probably true. And they would just superglue it onto their existing theological structure. So Ephesus, Ephesus is the home of the temple of Artemis. 
Now, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is one of the largest classical Greek temples ever built. You have to imagine a thing that's literally the size of a college football stadium, right? Like something like 670 giant Greek or Greek-style columns holding this massive structure up. This bad boy is huge. All that exists of it in present day is two columns at the entrance. And we'll, we'll actually talk about that in a little bit because it's interesting kind of what ends up happening to this temple. But, but this thing is massive. Again, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. It's big. And at this point in Roman history, this has become the main thing that holds Ephesus up. Ephesus was originally started as a port city. It, it gave access from the people of Galatia to the people of Macedonia, from, from Turkey to Greece, right? But because of environmental problems, the rivers that fed into the bay at Ephesus actually slogged up and turned into swamps. And by the time of the first century, right, by the time Paul is there, the city is several miles away from the ocean. The ports are useless. They've turned into swamps. The main thing that keeps Ephesus going is religious tourism. Now, this is weird, right? But, 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 but connect back with me to this whole idea of this Roman syncretistic religion. Because remember, they're willing to just grab a hold of any practice, any history, any tradition, and just glue it on to their existing theology. So what you end up with is a single unifying theological framework for all of Rome, the Roman, the Roman gods. But how those things are practiced area to area is wildly different. So the Greek goddess Artemis, when Rome came along and conquered Ephesus, they just said, that's Deanna. That's always been Deanna. Artemis and Deanna, same person. And they just squished it together and said, yeah, this, this temple to Artemis is the temple to Deanna. We have one of those in Rome. Same thing, I promise you. Problem was, it wasn't the same thing. Artemis and Deanna had very different mythologies, right? Deanna is, is portrayed in art as a young huntress. She always has a bow and arrow and a small animal with her. She was the goddess of the hunt and considered the goddess of wild animals. In fact, if someone was attacked or mauled by a wild animal, it was considered an expression of the wrath of Deanna. Now, she also was connected a little bit because of this nature connection to some ideas of, like, the harvest and good luck in the harvest and things like that. But Artemis, Artemis is a goddess of fertility. She's centered around giving you babies and giving you crops, right? To tell you how different this is, at the actual original temple to Deanna, just a few miles outside Rome, which is still there, all the priests and priestesses were expected to remain celibate for the entirety of their service. Whereas all the priests and priestesses of Artemis and Ephesus, you know, they maintained temple prostitution and actually had worship practices centered around pretty insane like orgies and things like that as a religious rite to try and gain fertility from Artemis. Another weird little side note, this has nothing to do with the sermon, I just think it's interesting. At the Temple of Deanna, if you wanted to become a priest, you had to kill one of the other priests. So you had to like sneak in and knife them to like, get your job. It's pretty intense. Anyway, the point of this is this. If you were a fan of Deanna slash Artemis, where you lived greatly impacted how you worship Deanna slash Artemis. And so for those who were really religiously devout, this, this religious tourism slash pilgrimage culture began to develop in Rome 
where if you were really passionate about a particular god or goddess, a way of showing your devotion and building intimacy with that divine would be to travel the Roman Empire and visit all of their different shrines and temples and learn all the different expressions of how people worship that god or goddess. So Artemis, being a really weird expression of Diana, really different than how she's worshipped in Rome, and being one of the largest temples in the known world, was a real hot spot of this pilgrimage-type religious tourism. And, and honestly, guys, it's, it's hard to, to oversell this piece. A massive amount of the economy of Ephesus was built around people coming to visit this temple. This guy, Demetrius, is a silversmith, and he's getting together with the craftsmen of the city to complain about loss of revenue. The reason is because there was an entire industry built around making temple souvenirs for people who would visit Ephesus. This is a real thing. We have archaeological evidence of this, of people who would stamp silver coins with a picture of Artemis on one side and a picture of the temple on the other, or people who would build clay or marble models of the temple and sell them. There was an entire industry around tourists coming to visit the temple and all the stuff you could sell them so they could remember their awesome trip. This seems a little familiar, right? I feel like this might be the southern coast, the Gulf Coast. Anyway, you guys get what I'm saying, right? Like, this is a big deal. And this is what's so amazing about this. A city of hundreds of thousands of people, a massive prominent city in the Roman Empire, a huge industry that keeps the city moving and going. And they are legitimately worried about the effects of the gospel on their pocketbooks. You need to think about that for a moment. The gospel is moving in such power in Ephesus that a guy like Demetrius is going, I might lose my income over this. Because, because these guys are preaching a radical worldview. This is so different than how the Romans understood theology. In general, the Romans could care less when visiting preachers and, and religion teachers came in because they were synchronistic. You got something good? Let's hear about it. Sounds good. Let's super glue it on to our massive behemoth of theology. But the Christians weren't like that. They came in and said, actually, all of this is fake. At, war, at best, it's demonic, which is not very good. What you want is Jesus, the one true God, the one true creator. Everything else is garbage. That's intense. We saw how intense that was in the previous text where the church gets together and burns a whole bunch of occult materials. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars, and in modern dollars equivalent, of stuff they burn in the city square because they're so confident in the truth of the gospel that they don't want anything else. You can imagine that starts to get the attention of the guys who make money selling anything else. Because that speaks to how powerful the gospel is. It's a big city. It's a big industry. And we tend to, for, for a lot of good reasons up to this point, think of the Christian church as a relatively small and kind of minority movement. Because it always has been a relatively small and kind of minority movement up to this point. But this at this point, this is more than just some people are mad at Paul for his preaching which is important here. The city of Ephesus is noticing the church of Jesus, and they don't like it. 
It's pushing all the wrong buttons. Demetrius makes this threefold argument here. He says, we're going to lose money. That's the first part, probably the most important part of his argument. We're going to lose money. Second, well, these people are teaching that gods made by human hands aren't actually gods. Which, really quick, can we just stop for a minute and go, ah, bud, I feel like you know that. <laughs> but anyway, this is the second piece. They're, they're calling people away from the very act of idolatry. How dare they? And beyond that, if this continues on, I mean, what if, what if Artemis herself is deposed? What if, what if the temple is no longer honored and revered? Now, by the way, it's really easy as modern Western readers to read this with a little bit of an eye roll at these superstitious pagans who, you know, were so easily swayed by dumb things like little silver coins. But it's important to remember something here. Roman theology is not actually terribly concerned with truth claims. I know this is kind of weird for us because we don't think about spirituality this way. Like we, we tend to, in the evangelical movement, think about spirituality as a truth claim that reflects reality or it doesn't. The Roman world, the Roman theological mindset didn't think this way. We actually don't really have any way of knowing whether or not Demetrius had any actual spiritual belief in the goddess Artemis and her power. The real thing is, Romans were very pragmatic about their theology. If it worked, it's good. This works. It keeps the city going. It keeps the money flowing. It keeps the economy moving. It keeps the city alive. It's good theology. So when he says this thing of Artemis may be deposed, he may very well be speaking from his own spiritual devotion to the goddess. And he could just as easily be saying, hey, this will kill the economy of our city. Because really they're the same thing in this point, in this culture, in this context. They're very intermixed, right? So he makes this threefold argument. We're going to lose money. People are walking away from the very practice of idolatry. And Artemis might be dishonored. And this is enough to whip this entire city into a frenzy. They, they move into this riot and they, they drag a couple of Paul's compatriots into the city theater. Now, this theater is massive. It would have held thousands of people. So I, I, want, I want you to get yourself in that headspace, right? The St. Charles Family Arena, full of people chanting in anger at the two poor little church boys down in the middle, right? This is the scene right here. And look at their chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This chant is so intense for them that, that when someone stands up to try and calm them down and speak into it, they literally just shout over him. And the text says, for two hours, this crowd stands chanting over and over, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I don't want to be like overly dramatic here, but I hope that this scene is actually kind of haunting to you. This is intense. Think of thousands of people so given over to a false spiritual belief, right? To an anti-gospel movement that they are shouting the praise of a false god over and above these people standing in the room. It's intense. For, for literal hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Shouting it. 
while city officials are even like, hey, let's calm this thing down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just shouting over it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's this perfect picture of how completely intertwined the Ephesian worldview is. Artemis is Ephesus and Ephesus is Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You don't mess with that. You mess with that, you're messing with us. You know, Paul tries to get in there. He wants to help. And the, the situation is so bad that not only does the church, but literal city officials send word and they're like, do not let Paul walk in this building. Send him away. This will not go well if you send him in here. And so they don't. And these two guys are stuck out in the open. And the story kind of fizzles out in this weird way, right? Finally, after two hours of just chanting themselves hoarse, worshiping Artemis, one of the city officials finally gets them to be quiet enough to go, hey, look, this is all illegal. If anyone wants to do something about these two guys, give a formal charge and take them to court. Otherwise, Romans will come in here and kill all of us for rioting. That calmed everyone down pretty quick. <laughs> no one went, Oh, good point. Yeah, great as Artemis. Anyway, see you guys later. And they all went home. And the text ends, as everything calms down and disperses, Paul goes, he meets with the church, he encourages them. But at this point, right, like, hey, bud, you got to go. And so he packs up his bags and makes his way toward Macedonia. And that's where the text ends. This is a really intense, big story that kind of fizzles at the end. But I think this is actually really important for us. I think this story points us to a simple truth that I really think we just need to dissect from a couple angles to, to really do it justice. I think what this plainly tells us, what we've already said, is that the gospel of Jesus is not content to coexist with idolatry. Where the gospel is present, idolatry will be exposed. And not just exposed, but, but conflict will come to a head. Jesus will not sit peacefully with false gospel that is rotting and killing souls that are precious to him and made in his image. So when you put him in the same room, things will get wild. Because he's not content with that. Now this, this sounds like a pretty intense moment, if we're honest. This, this kind of thing, in a, con, a cultural context, a time like ours, you know, can maybe just set us on edge a little bit in an age where religion of all kinds has been used to justify violence and abuse and things like that. It's not terribly popular to insinuate that Christianity refuses to peacefully coexist with other religious practices and worldviews. And so, so that's kind of your gut reaction there. I, I want you to sit with me in this for a moment because I think there's an important nuance here that we have to highlight if we're going to understand how this works out in our own context. And it's this. There's a very specific meaning to this idea in Christian theology. It's absolutely necessary for us in a text like this. You see, the way of Jesus is inherently peaceful. It is. I mean, look at Jesus' own ministry. There's no call to violence or a holy war in Christian theology. Jesus commanded his followers to love their enemies to pray for those who persecute them. Jesus commanded his followers to go out of their way to serve and benefit those who mistreat them. So how can a theology that calls for peace 
love and service fail to peacefully coexist with a differing worldview? How, how, how does that happen? It happens because Jesus commands his followers to faithfully stand on the truth of the gospel. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus is incredibly loving, but it is also unapologetically exclusive. It is what it is. When I, and by the way, when I say the gospel message, I mean the gospel message, the whole message of Scripture, the, the message that God created this world perfect, the idea that, that death and suffering exist because sin broke God's perfect world, the truth that we can't fix what is broken in this world, but we're rather dependent upon our creative God to intervene on our behalf. The truth that God did intervene when he entered the world in human form is Jesus, that this Jesus lived a perfect life on earth to actually earn eternity because he committed no sin, but instead died an unjust sinner's death and paid the penalty for that sin and then rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit of God, defeating sin, defeating the curse, defeating death itself, and then ascended to heaven from which he will return to judge and restore all things. That gospel message, whew, that is reality, according to the scripture. That reflects the truth of the world within which we live. That story defines the world around us. So to say yes to that true story is to inherently say no to a million false stories. And as followers of Jesus... From a place of humility, love, service, grace, simply standing on the unchanging foundation of the truth of the gospel is deeply offensive. It just is. The scripture says the gospel is the scent of life to those who are in Christ, but to those outside Christ, it is the stench of death. Don't know if you ever hung around rotting meat, it's not pleasant. The gospel story is deeply offensive, not because it attacks the world or, or tells Christians to go attack the world, but precisely because it is so loving and kind. The gospel says that this story represents reality and represents the exclusive way for humanity to find peace, life, freedom, forgiveness. And yet, in that confidence and that exclusivity, it does not force itself. It allows others the dignity of living in their wrongness if they so desire. The gospel allows every person the dignity of rejecting the gospel, if that's what their hearts actually long for. Followers of Jesus will still love and serve them as image bearers of God to the very end. That gospel looks at someone clutching desperately to an idol, as though as though that empty well could actually satisfy their soul. And the gospel says, that will not satisfy you. This will. But if you want to keep holding that, you can. <laughs> That's intense. What response is there to that? You either have your heart open to the truth of the very mortal peril of your soul and, 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 and reach out to Christ or you clutch all the tighter to the idol and you chant with the crowd, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, what else 
Could you possibly respond to that? How does that not feel condescending, right? This is better for you. This is actually the only thing that will help you. But you can keep that if you want to. That's love. That's grace. That's honor. Man, that doesn't feel good (laughs) if you're on the other end of it. And so that chant makes sense. There's something in our own hearts, if we're honest, that you go, yeah, I get that. I get that. I get the response that would hear that unashamed, unapologetic truth with, 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 by the way, like the way the Bible speaks of the truth of the gospel is completely uncompromising. It's not, I mean, this way is best for you. What, I mean, everything, you know, you got something okay, but this is, this is, I think, better for you. No, 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 no. The way the gospel is, this story represents reality. This is truth. Anything outside of that is death for you. There is no second best option. It is Christ or eternity without him. And you don't have to take that deal if you don't want to, but you should. That's intense. That's heavy. Of course, some hearts will respond to that and just say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Get out of my face. But here's the thing about idolatry. Artemis is not great. She is false. She is forgotten. And we don't have any Artemis temples around West County. She cannot save. She is man-made. She cannot satisfy. She cannot free. But these people could not let go of their idols. They were too entwined into their self-understanding. And so when presented with the gospel, the text tells us, Two and a half years, the Apostle Paul boldly proclaiming the gospel in this city. And the ministry is so affected that it says, essentially the gospel goes out to all of Turkey. It's a big city, you know, people in and out. The gospel goes out to the entire region. What they're describing here is what missiologists call gospel saturation. The majority of people have heard some form of the message, have heard what's going on, have had a chance to interact with it, think about it, think what their hearts how their hearts respond to it. But in this context, at the heart of that, where the gospel has been boldly going out for years and years, these folk cannot let go of that idol. They clutch to it all the tighter. And their response is great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Which leads us to our landing place today. There's two things I'd like for us to consider as we kind of bring this story home and kind of land this thing. The first one is this. The idolatry of Artemis was so deeply entwined into the Ephesian identity. It made it really hard for them to see through it. You know what I mean? To be Ephesian was to honor Artemis, to honor Artemis in some level. Like it was very, at least that kind of Artemis was very, you know, very, very, very Ephesian. They could hardly separate the worship from the identity. So as we look into our own world, as we think about our own context... American, Midwestern, St. Louis, and suburban culture. And we didn't, might have a hard time imagining our people and our place without some forms of idolatry. It's so easy, right, to stand kind of smug in a story like this as our modern Western readers. We think about people clutching to little clay statues and we're like, that's so silly. They, 
Demetrius knew some guy made that thing in a back room, right? Like, you know, like there's that piece of us that just kind of gets kind of like, really? I, love, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this book, but uh, there's this fiction book called American Gods written by a guy named Neil Gaiman. It's this fantasy book where he kind of, it's, it's a very weird story. But the most interesting thing from that story is he talks about, he, he creates this world where all the old pagan gods are dying in America because no one believes in them anymore and they don't have any power. And, and, and they're being replaced by these new American gods because everyone believes in these new American gods. And you kind of have this moment where you go, who are the American gods? Well, you meet internet and you meet media and you meet wealth. These different gods that American culture has taken on who are immensely more powerful you know, than Thor and Odin and things like that because so many more people believe in them. It's so easy to roll our eyes at someone clutching to a little clay idol of Artemis. And yet, there is so much idolatry wrapped up in our culture. As you think about what it means to be part of our people, you know, suburban Midwesterners, St. Louisans, West Countiers, West Count Heights, West Countians, you guys know what I'm saying. What is it? What is it that that actually feels wrapped up in our identity? Worship of comfort, success, wealth. How about an idolatry of self? Self-care, self-reliance, independence. Can you imagine our culture without some of those things? What it would even mean to, to rip those things out of who it is to be us? How tightly do we clutch to those things? How often do we hear the message that our salvation will come from our wealth and our comfort? I mean, genuinely. Think about the advertisements we take in. Think about the political speeches we listen to. How often do we hear the message, your real salvation is in the economic success of your nation, is in your ability to build a good career, your ability to have good mental health and an awesome family and a great house paid off with little debt. How often do those things get wormed into us over and over and over? And how hard is that to actually even separate out? Second, and I think this is a little more intense maybe, it's, it's a little easier to stand back and go, what's wrong with my culture? <laughs> hard, but a little easier than asking, what idols are you clutching onto? What are the things that you need to let go of? You know, Jesus says, right, you know, before you call out the speck, take the log out of your eye. And it's really important, right, because he says, take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck. So yeah, we need to be able to speak boldly about the false idols that live in our culture and call our people away from life and toward death the false salvations that are proclaimed in our world every day. We need to be able to speak into that as followers of Jesus, as followers of the way who believe this exclusive true gospel message. But beloved, we gotta start by taking a step back and go, what am I clutching to? What am I holding so tight to? What can I not let go of? And beloved, don't be embarrassed <laughs> at this question. We are all of us idolaters. Calvin said the human heart is a factory for idols. We love to take things made by man and place them on the throne of our life. 
and put them in the place of God. We are almost, almost hardwired to look for forms of salvation, forms of relief, forms of comfort outside of the gospel of Jesus. We all do it. There's no shame in that game. You just got to be real with it. All of us have cried, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We likely don't look to Artemis to ground us, because that would be weird. But man, we have shouted the same thing about plenty of man-made things that help us feel secure. Great is my house. Great is my career. Great is my financial standing. Great is my relationship with my spouse or kids. Great is my particular politician. Great is my dating relationship. Great is my sex life and sexual experience. Great is the media I take in. Great is the food or alcohol I look to to comfort myself. Great is my favorite form of church culture. (laughs) We, all of us, clutch to our petty idols. They comfort us. They feel good. They feel like salvation. But beloved, we all know. We all know in our heart of hearts. Just like you can like look at that story with Demetrius and be like, bro, you know, you know. We all know that those things do us about as much good as a silver coin with Artemis's face stamped on it. They're things of this world. They... They will not last. They will not satisfy you. They will not give you what your heart desires. They will not free you from the burdens of this world. They are idols. They are made by man. They will fade away. They won't be here for eternity. The gospel will. Your sweet Jesus will. Your Lord and Savior who lived for you and died for you and rose again to the glory of God and made a place for you who's going to come and judge and restore all things, he will be with you for eternity. He actually speaks to the needs of your heart. Beloved, make no mistake. Jesus will not peacefully coexist with your idolatry. He won't. He won't share his throne with Artemis and he certainly won't share it with your comfort or your escapism of choice. And mine either. Please don't hear me talking down to you guys. This is cutting me to the quick. What do you clutch to like it keeps you alive? What if Jesus asked you to lay it down right now would cause you to pause, cause you to stammer, cause you to try and make a deal with him? Because we know, beloved, we know that the only thing that actually fills the human heart is the lover of our soul, Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But our sinful hearts tell us all sorts of things in this world can accomplish that same purpose. Even if it's just for a little bit, it still does it, right? I can sit and do this this evening. I know I shouldn't, but I'll feel better. Or I can lean into this and give my, give my worth, my thought, my mindfulness to this, and you know, it'll, it'll, it'll help build some security for me and my family. We all do those things. So today as we land, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. As we land, you know, I would love 
to end this by going, you know, let's think about how we can be creative and intentional and missional and how we present the gospel to the world and, and, and you know, how we lovingly call out the idolatry around us to, to call people to truth. And that is true. I hope we do that. I, I hope that we process through that and think through those things together. But I'll just be honest, church, and maybe this is me just being a little too confessional from the pulpit. I feel like if we're going to have that discussion, that what we really need to do in this space is take a moment and be honest with Jesus about the idols that we're clutching to. I know some of us have heard really clearly from God about the idols we're holding to for a long time. And we've just put such a heel in the ground to say, no, Jesus, that I'm not willing to go there. That we're not even thinking about that level of conviction anymore. That we've numbed ourselves to those idols. I would encourage us today to just maybe sit with Jesus and ask him afresh to cut your heart and point out to you the things that you clutch and hold on to like they will save you. Ask him. Ask him honestly. Lord, what, what am I putting on your throne? And maybe you don't need to ask because maybe there's already like five things in your head like me. But maybe you need to. See what he says. Ask him what it would look like to actually lay those things down. Because beloved... Artemis is not great, but Jesus is. Let's take a few moments to be with him in prayer, and then we'll continue on with our gathering.